Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. 1st uh, a bit of an announcement. I have had several people ask me about homecoming this year and what our plan is. In years past, pre-COVID, we used to have homecoming services over the Resurrection Sunday weekend. And we would make a whole weekend of it with speakers on Saturday and on Sunday. And we'd go to a restaurant. We'd rent out a restaurant for Saturday night. And then we'd have potluck here on Sunday. And it grew and grew. And we had people coming from around the country and indeed a few visitors from around the world. And they would come in and spend the whole week here just to gather together. This year, we are not going to do that. We haven't been able to do it for the last couple of years because of the COVID politics. Instead, what we're going to do this year is we're going to still have communion service on Sunday morning, April 17th. That previous Friday is Passover, and so it works out very well that we'll have communion service on Sunday. And then Sunday afternoon, we will have a potluck community meal together. And then Jeff had suggested maybe on Saturday night, because there are some people who, even though I am now saying publicly over the Internet that we're not doing an official homecoming weekend, there are some people who plan to be here anyway. So that's good, and they're certainly welcome. We're just not doing as big a to-do as we've done in the past. So Jeff suggested maybe Saturday night we'd have a game night since there will be everybody gathering together. And so we're going to try to do a Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon thing for that weekend. All right. That is the official announcement concerning homecoming. Now people can quit asking me.
have been working our way verse by verse through the book of Revelation. We are currently in chapter 6. The first four seals we went through last week. Today we will look at the fifth and the sixth seal. So let's begin by reading the whole of chapter 6 so that we understand the context. And then we'll go back and start digging into the details. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal... I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come, and I looked and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been, should be completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and of the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him 
who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand? Does anybody here know what a Rorschach test is? Has anybody here ever undergone a Rorschach test? How many of you are under psychological evaluation at this very moment? How many should be? I am there. Oh, trouble in the front row. A Rorschach test is basically an inkblot test. And it's given during psychological evaluations because it is our tendency to want to make sense of things. And so pictures of absolutely nothing, just blots of ink, are shown to people and the person doing the counseling or the analysis will say, what do you see? And invariably, people will see things, even though there's nothing there. It's the same as Charlie Brown and Linus looking up at the clouds and saying, what do you see? Charlie Brown always sees something like a puppy, and Linus always sees the death of St. Paul or something. (laughs) The clouds are not demonstrating puppies or theological history, but we, because we want to normalize everything, when we see something that we don't recognize, something that's not familiar to us, we will fill in the blanks in our head. Have you ever looked at, let's say, a piece of tile that just has a design in it? And you'll stare at it long enough until you see a face or a person or just something familiar. It's something that we all do. We try to become familiar with unfamiliar things. That's what happens very often when people are reading the book of Revelation because there's a lot of stuff in here that's very unfamiliar to us. And certainly verse 9 and verse 10 fall into that category of language that we're just generally not familiar with, images that we're not familiar with, and so we will take our theological or eschatological grid and we will wedge these verses into that grid in order to make it more familiar so that we can then handle it in a more comfortable fashion. As a consequence... You can read commentary after commentary after commentary. And I have. It's my job. You pay me to do it. I've read so many commentaries about these couple of verses that come away with conclusions that these verses just don't say. It's just not in there. But it is the result of having a theological grid as you approach the book and then wedging these verses into your theological grid. So... What we've been attempting to do for 20 years here is just pay attention to what the words on the page actually say, and then we try not to impose a bunch of allegorical or mystical interpretation to the Bible. We're interested in what the word actually says. After all, Paul told Timothy, and I think by extension told the whole church, preach the word. Just keep preaching the word. Keep saying what the word says. So we're going to look at this portion of Revelation and concentrate on what it does say and try not to say what it doesn't say. For instance, the first four of these seals follow a pattern, which is that they each are representative 
of some occurrence on the planet that seems to happen one after the other after the other sequentially. And each of them are interpreted for us, which is really, really helpful. When the angel interprets for us, then what we see is four living creatures who stand before the throne of God. John sees each of these seals broken. A different color horse comes out. And then the four living creatures say, come and look. And then John is told what they represent. As a consequence, we know that that first seal and that first horse represents a time of peace on earth. After all, there is this person represented here who comes making peace. That's why he has a bow and no arrows. But it's a false peace because once he's given a crown, once he's given authority, then he goes out conquering and to conquer. Now that's familiar language to anybody who knows the book of Daniel because in Daniel 9, Daniel describes a time period, a seven-year time period, in which he says that there is going to be a character who he calls the little horn, and that that little horn is going to confirm the covenant for one week with the many. In other words, that same covenant to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple that was originally established by Cyrus and then later was reconfirmed by Artaxerxes, which is the start date of the 70 weeks. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here except to say that that's all in the book of Daniel. And what we see is that in the middle of the week, he breaks the covenant, and that passage ends with desolations are determined. Okay, well, if you know that about Daniel 9, then this is familiar to you, the idea that there is a white horse It looks like there's going to be peace, there's going to be agreement, there's going to be rebuilding, and then once he comes into power, he breaks that covenant, and then there's going to be conquering and going out to conquer. So the first horse, the white horse, is representative of a false peace. Following that, the second seal is broken, the second living creature says come, and another, a red horse, goes out. And we're told that he is granted to take peace from the earth and that men will slay one another and a great sword is given to him. So that represents a time of warfare on the planet. So first there's a false peace and then war breaks out. The third seal is representative of the famine that follows those events here on planet earth. He broke the third seal. The third living creature said, come. I looked and there was a black horse. And then we saw last week that the phrase, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that was a day's pay. So you'd have to work a whole day just to buy not enough wheat to even make a meal out of. And then, of course, don't harm the oil and the wine. We talked about the fact that the oil and the wine were signs of wealth and luxury. So the well-to-do people are going to be fine. But the people who have to struggle day to day to earn their bread are going to be in great hardship and famine. So false peace, then war, then famine, followed by, of course, between the war and the famine, just an outbreak of death. The fourth seal, the fourth living creature says, come. I looked and behold, an ashen horse. He who sat on it, his name is death. Hades is following with him, and authority is given 
to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with the wild beasts of the earth. So the sequence is false peace, war breaks out, famine, widespread death. Each of those four horses are explained to us by one of the living creatures. Starting in verse 9, no more living creatures, because there were only four of them. And the first four seals and the first four horses, and now there's no more living creatures to explain. Which is why people feel so comfortable imposing their own interpretations to it. But the fifth seal is broken, and I contend that the same way that the first four seals were representative of something that occurs on the planet, so are the fifth and sixth seal. For instance, starting in verse 9, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar. There's been no mention of an altar up until now in the book of Revelation. And so people debate which altar this is. In the tabernacle in the wilderness, there were two altars. There was an altar of sacrifice and there was an altar of incense. And because there are souls crying out to God under this particular altar, people interpret that to try to figure out which of those two altars it might be. And they say, well, the souls under the altar are praying to God. And we saw previously in the book of Revelation how there was a bowl of sweet incense brought to God, which was described as the prayer of the saints. So knowing all of that, this is obviously the altar of incense. Or there are other people who say, no, these are the souls of the slain. So this is the altar of sacrifice. The fact is, it's neither. It's an altar in heaven. Here, I'll explain it to you this way. For years, theologians have debated Paul's writing in Romans 7. And they will argue about whether Paul is writing from the perspective of a saved man or an unsaved man. Jeff gave me an article written by one of his professors, uh, Dr. Ullman, right? And in that article, Dr. Ullman said, it doesn't matter because Paul doesn't tell you whether his perspective is as a saved or a lost man, because that's not what Paul is talking about. The whole point of the whole chapter is to prove the impossibility of being saved by the law, and that's the point of the chapter, so people get so busy debating about the saved-unsaved thing that they miss the whole point of the chapter. Well, that was eye-opening to me, and I agreed completely and said, now I see why Jeff speaks so highly of Dr. Ullman. Okay, same thing here. You can get caught in the trenches of trying to figure out what this altar is. Is it the altar of incense? Is it the altar of sacrifice? Is it? The simple fact is, John does not tell us that it is a specific altar used for a specific purpose. In fact, This is the first of eight different occurrences of this particular altar in the book of Revelation. And it's referred to as the altar, because that's what John saw. Now, when it comes to the matter of what John saw, John is the subject matter expert. Nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. And he wrote down what he saw. And what he saw 
was an altar, which he referred to as the altar. And that altar in Revelation 8, you're going to see it being used as an incense altar. But it's also an altar for burning. It's also an altar for sacrifice. And you're going to see that as we continue through the book of Revelation. So the first place where we need to kind of clear the decks is to say John saw an altar before God. And that's as much as we know. If we want to define it some other way, we can miss the whole point by arguing about which altar. Underneath it were the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Commentators are very divided about that. Commentators argue about who are these souls that are under the altar. Some people will say, well, these are the souls of all the slain throughout biblical history. And they are praying to God and asking him, when are you going to avenge us? After all, we didn't give up our testimony of you, and therefore we were slain. So that would be all the people who have ever been martyred for the sake of God, and that is their testimony. Other people argue that contextually, because this is about the time of Daniel's 70th week, a time of trouble on the earth, unlike anything that had ever been, people argue, well, then the slain under the altar are those particular people who are martyred during the tribulation period. And then they take the leap to, and because that's who they are, that proves the church is going through the tribulation. John doesn't say anything like that. It's not John's point to talk about that. In fact, John doesn't tell us who the souls under the altar are. So I'm not going to define for you who the souls under the altar are. You okay with that? Because what John saw was souls under the altar. And their significance is that they represent something. So there are souls who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who are on the earth? That phrase, those who are on the earth, is a technical phrase that John uses a lot. And in fact, when we were going through the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights, we saw this phrase over and over again. Isaiah pointed out a particular people group who he called the earth dwellers. And they stand in contrast to those that are being saved from this planet, looking forward to a heavenly destiny. But there are these people, these earth dwellers, who John refers to here. I think he got that phraseology right from Isaiah. And what you're going to see all the way through the book of Revelation is that every time John uses the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, every time it's a description of people who fall under the wrath of God. It's a very consistent thing. For instance, Revelation 3.10, they are the object of a test that God is putting to the faithful followers of Christ who are promised deliverance from it, but the earth dwellers are going to suffer through it. In Revelation 6.10, they are directly responsible for the violent deaths 
of the faithful followers of Christ under the altar in heaven. That's what we're reading now. Then they come up again in Revelation 8.13, where they are the objects of the three woes that are expressed in the trumpets. Revelation 11.10, they rejoice, and the final witnesses are finally put to death. Revelation 11.10, also they are the objects of torment for those two witnesses. Revelation 13, 8, they are the non-elect worshipers of the beast who comes up out of the sea. Revelation 13, 14, the beast deceives them specifically. Revelation 13, 14, also, they make an image of the beast that comes up out of the sea. Revelation 17, 18, they are the non-elect who wonder at the restoration of the beast up out of the abyss. Are you getting a feel for the way John uses this phrase, the earth dwellers? Okay, so here, the souls under the altar are asking God, when are you going to avenge our blood on the earth dwellers? Because the earth dwellers are responsible for shedding their blood. Now we're getting into the meat of what John saw and why he saw it. This is why I didn't want to bog down into what altar is it or who are these people under the altar. The essence of what John saw and the point is that there is martyrdom and then there is God avenging. Now God all the way through the Bible is described as the one who is going to avenge and set things right. That's why God says things like, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense. So God is the one who is going to avenge. And so the people are praying to God and saying, when are you going to avenge? They know that he's promised he's going to do it. When are you going to do it? It's a when question. Are you going to avenge us? How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told, follow this, because it just doesn't get more sovereign than this. And again, just to put a fine emphasis on it, to underline it, big, bold, block letters, this is the point. This is what John's writing about here. This is what is being represented by this vision. They are told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they have been should be completed also. Again, doesn't get more sovereign than that. Think about it. People who have been slain asking God, when are you going to avenge our blood? It's the kind of God you are. That's how you describe yourself. You are the vengeful God. You are the one who is righteous and true. You are going to pour out your wrath. When are you going to do that on our behalf? His answer is, there's more people that I have sovereignly determined are going to suffer the way you've suffered, and I'm not going to pour out my vengeance until they also undergo what you've already undergone. Now, unless you have a good concept, of how actually sovereign God is, that becomes a really offensive phrase. Because God just said, I'm not going to do the avenging thing yet. Because there's more people that have to die. Meaning, of course, that those souls under the altar 
were meant to be martyred, because God says so. The others that have not been martyred the same way as you, I'm waiting until they are all martyred, because that's what God has determined for them, which is why God can predict all this stuff in advance. I've said it a thousand times. I'm going to say it again. This will be the thousandth and one time that I've said this. The Bible's full of prophecy. Prophecy doesn't work unless the future is definite. It's the only reason that God can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And he does it all the way through the Bible and even says that that is the demonstration of his control over everything and says, watch and see if this doesn't happen. It's God's demonstration of his complete sovereignty. I didn't grow up understanding the sovereignty of God. I grew up very Arminian, very free willist, very I'm in control, dig me, boom, 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 up, up, up with people. I grew up that way. And I came to understand the sovereignty of God through studying prophecy. Because it hit me one day that a God who can tell you what's going to happen before it happens and then it actually happens is a God who doesn't leave things to chance. This is a God who can say this is definitely going to happen. And then because he is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful, he can exercise that power in order to make sure that what he has said is going to come true actually comes true. So he's not prophesying in a sort of Gene Dixon-y way. He's declaring. He's declaring the future. This is what it is. This is what it looks like. This is how it's going to lay out. This is what's going to happen. And that's what you see again right here. Here is God who is responding to the souls under the altar who are asking him, when are you going to avenge our blood? You are, after all, the avenging God. And he responds to them by saying, here you get white robes. I'm going to give you white robes. Now, white robes, by the way, are all the way through the book of Revelation as well. White robes are given to the overcomers. We read about that when we were reading the letters to the seven churches. White robes, the 24 elders have them in Revelation 4. White robes are given to the martyrs here in Revelation 6.11. White robes are given to the universally innumerable multitude in Revelation 7.9. And they're given to the armies of heaven in Revelation 19. And those people who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb receive their white robes. So the white robes are described to us as the righteousness of the saints. But you'll notice that the only place they get that righteousness is that God gives it to them. It's not self-earned righteousness. It's not righteousness that God looks at them and says, well done, good job. You achieve some major righteousness during your life. The white robes, which designate the righteousness of God, are always gifted by God to people. So that's what happens to these martyrs. They are given white robes. So they are given the righteousness that God requires because God supplies everything necessary for our full, complete redemption and salvation. It's all up to him. Verse 11 says, and there was given to each of them a white robe. That's God's response to them. When are you going to avenge us? Here I will gift you with necessary righteousness. 
But then you need to just wait. You need to rest a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brethren who were to be killed even as they have been should be completed also. So here's what we've got so far in this chapter. We've got a false peace. We've got war. We've got famine, which results in widespread death. And then the vengeance of God. And that's what begins in the sixth seal. So verse 12. I looked and he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it's shaken by a great wind and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places we'll get to verse 15 in a minute we'll see the response of the people of earth by the way this is another response from the earth dwellers the people who are not protected by God the people who have not been invited to the marriage supper of the lamb the people who are not marked and sealed by God. The earth dwellers left behind are the ones who are going to suffer the pouring out of the wrath of God. Now, this language, we saw it last week. We're going to see it again. We're going to see it multiple times as we go through the book of Revelation. Wow, my mouth just exploded. We've seen it multiple times as we've gone through the book of Revelation. We have seen how very, very Jewish this book is and how much it relies on the Old Testament scriptures. This is another one of those examples. This idea of all these heavenly disturbances and earthquakes and the moonlight blood and the sun not giving its light, that's very Old Testament. It's repeated over and over again. It's not unique to John. It's not something new that is revealed in the book of Revelation and then the readers of the book of Revelation would have said, what? What's that? They'd be very familiar with it because it's talked about so often, and Jesus himself talked about it. Now, you can flip along with me if you want, but I'm going to show you some of the examples. For instance, in Isaiah 13, I'm going to be reading several verses here from verse 4 to verse 13, and you're going to see this same language. So, again, Isaiah predicting something to come. Jesus, when he's on the planet, confirms that it's something to come. John, 92 to 96 AD on the Isle of Patmos, sees another vision of it and confirms it's something to come. Anybody seen it yet? No. Nobody living today has seen these particular things. However, they're described by Isaiah. They're confirmed by Jesus And then they're confirmed by John. Is there any chance it's not going to happen? No doubt. I mean, we got to say, this is going to happen. It's repeated over and over. Okay, I've spent enough time describing it. Is everybody in Isaiah that wants to get there? Isaiah 13, I'm going to start at verse 4. By the way, I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible, which the more I read, the more I actually like. So I'll be reading from that. The big difference between the Legacy Standard Bible and the NASB that I usually teach out of. For years, I have contended that we have systematically lost the name of God. 
He's Yahweh. He called himself Yahweh. He said, call me by my name, Yahweh. And then because the Jews felt that that was too high and holy a name, and so they created the name Jehovah by taking the consonant sounds from Yahweh and the vowel sounds from Adonai, and they scrunched them together and came up with Jehovah so that they wouldn't say that high and holy name. And then every time that you read in the NASB, capital L-O-R-D, that's that Yahweh name, and sometimes it's translated as Jehovah, but God meant for it to be Yahweh. So the, the Legacy Standard Bible actually uses the name Yahweh, and I like that. So that's why I sort of prefer that. Isaiah 13. I really am going to read this. I am. I'm going I'm to get to this. Starting at verse 4. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people. A sound of rumbling of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Yahweh of hosts is mustering the host for battle. Yahweh of hosts, you probably know, is the phrase Lord of hosts. You've grown up with Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth. He's the God of the armies, the armies on earth, the armies in heaven, the whole of the host. He's the one that is sovereignly in control of them here called Yahweh of hosts. And he's mustering together the host, all the armies of the earth, gathering them for battle. And they are coming from a far country, from the end of the sky. Yahweh and his instruments of indignation to wreak destruction on the whole land. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. Now you probably know, if you've been around church for any length of time, you know the phrase, the day of the Lord. Isaiah is about to describe the day of the Lord. It is the time of God pouring out his wrath. But the Legacy Standard Bible calls it the day of Yahweh. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and labor pangs will take a hold on them, and they will writhe like a woman in labor, and they will look at one another in astonishment their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. For I will punish the earth for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the pride of the arrogant, and I will bring low the lofty pride of the ruthless. And I will make a mortal man scarcer than fine gold. I'll make mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place, at the fury of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his burning anger. That's what's being described in chapter 6, starting at verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. 
Joel, the prophet, makes several references to this time of trouble that's being described here in Revelation 6. Joel 2, verses 10 and 11 says, Before them the earth trembles, and the heavens quake, and the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, but Yahweh gives forth his voice before his military force, and surely his camp is very numerous, for mighty is he who does his word. And the day of Yahweh, that day of the Lord, is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Then later, still in the same chapter, verse 31, well, verse 30, and I will put wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the awesome day of Yahweh comes. Joel 3 Starting in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. By the way, that word should be translated verdict because God is judging. God is pouring out verdicts on everybody. And there are multitudes of people who he is judging who are in the valley of the verdict of God for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of verdicts, the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness, and Yahweh roars from Zion and gives forth his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But Yahweh is a refuge to his people and a strong defense to the sons of Israel. There it is again, that division between the earth dwellers and those that God is a strong defense for. Okay, so you've got the Old Testament describing all that, and there are many more passages that talk about the day of the Lord. I'm not going to go into all of that right now because it's going to continue to come up in the book of Revelation. But I said that Jesus confirms this as well. This is from Matthew 24. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That, by the way, is essentially what the word antichrist means. Anti is a prefix that means substitute or replacement for, the one who stands in the place of, or it can mean the one who is opposed to, the one who is against. And so Jesus tells them in advance, there are going to be false messiahs, antichrists, who are going to come onto the planet. See that you're not deceived. And part of the reason he can say, don't be deceived by these men and what they're going to say, is because when Jesus returns, everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know it because this stuff that's described in Revelation 6 is going to accompany his return. So you're going to see it. You're going to know it. Jesus answered and said, See that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation, that's the Greek word ethnos, from which we get ethnicity, People of different races and backgrounds are going to rise against other ethnicities and kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, just like we read in Revelation 6. 
But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Here he is describing that time of trouble as birth pangs the same way that Isaiah did. And the reason that Isaiah said it was because everybody who was under that wrath of God was going to walk around like a woman ready to give birth, holding their sides, hunched over in pain. Jesus makes the same analogy. It's the beginning of birth pangs. Picking up at verse 29, he then says what I was just alluding to, that these heavenly disturbances are going to be accompanied by his return. Everybody's going to see it. Therefore, if somebody says, hey, we found Christ, and he's in the woods. <laughs> you know, hey, we found Jesus. He's in Mexico. You know, come join him. Hey, we found Jesus. He's, Jesus already said, don't believe them, because when I come back, this is what it's going to be like. Matthew 24, starting at verse 29, but immediately after the troubles, the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So against that backdrop, sun and moon and stars don't give their light, earthquakes, everything is shaken. Against that He then says, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. That means that's going to be the only lit thing in the whole universe. Everything's going to go dark, and then the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens, and the reaction of the people on earth, the earth dwellers, all the tribes of the earth are going to run out to meet him, and they're going to be so happy to see him. And they're going to run out and say, hey, it's Jesus. Up, up, up with Jesus. They're going to be so... It's not what it says. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. That's how Jesus described the response of the earth dwellers to his return. Here's how John describes it. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and every free man. Who's left out of that list? Nobody. Nobody. That's the whole point. That's why he took the time to enumerate all those different people groups, is to say everybody who's still on the planet at that moment after the wars and the death and after the protection of God, after all that, when Jesus returns, when the sun and the moon go dark, when the stars don't give their light and the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, Jesus himself said back in Matthew 24, it's going to be like the lightning that shines from the east to the west. The point is everybody sees it. It doesn't matter where you are. When a thunderstorm hits and the lightning hits, everybody under it sees it. And when Jesus comes back, Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to be going, odd weather today. They're going to know this is the return of someone spectacular. And they're not going to respond positively. They're not going to say, oh, yay, this is what the Bible says. Oh, good, Jesus is back. Instead, the way John describes it is everybody, absolutely everybody who's still on the planet, the earth dwellers, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves 
and among the rocks of the mountains. Exactly like Jesus said. Because the earth dwellers are going to know that the wrath of God is coming. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Typically, we don't think of lambs as being particularly wrathful. Bah, and I mean it. You know, we, we, don't, we don't usually think of wrathful lambs. But this is obviously a reference to Christ as he is represented as a lamb with seven eyes earlier in the book of Revelation. And to me, these two verses undermine the concept of salvation by choice or salvation by free will. I was raised uh, in the Lutheran church and then in a very Arminian church, and I was told that all you have to do to get somebody to make a decision for Jesus, all you have to do is give them an adequate inducement, which is why there's the people out there saying, come to Jesus and you'll get a new car and your children will run faster and jump higher and your marriage will improve. And Jesus never says anything like that, but that is what's called an adequate inducement to try to get people to choose Jesus, make a decision, make him your Lord and Savior. What a silly phrase that is. You don't make him anything. He already is Lord, and you don't make him Savior. He makes you saved. And so when these folks, these earth dwellers, are left on the planet, again, if free will salvation is true, when they see the moon turn like blood and sackcloth, When they see the stars no longer give their light and then suddenly the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens so that everybody sees it. Could we call that an adequate inducement? Should be. I mean, if you're going to choose to get saved, that would be the time. That'd be your moment. That'd be like, oh no, everything the Bible said is true. I better hurry up and make him Lord and Savior and then I'm good. But Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that when he comes back, people are going to run for cover. And John describes it as everybody, rich and poor, free and bond, everybody on the planet is going to prefer to have rocks fall on them than to stand before that. Where's your adequate inducement? Where's, where's your free will choice? Where's, I mean, this would be the moment these people would be choosing Jesus, and instead they run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, and they cry to the rocks and they say, fall on us and hide us from him. Hide us from his judgment and save us from the wrath of the lamb. He's not coming back as the good shepherd. He's not coming back to gather his fold. He's coming back to pour out vengeance on the earth dwellers. That also tells us, by the way, that the full complement, the full number of people who are set aside to be martyred, that's been accomplished. Because God has a definite number in mind and he knows what he has planned for absolutely everybody in his creation. And when that full number is achieved, he's going to pour out his wrath and his vengeance. 
And then we saw repeatedly in the Old Testament this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. John in verse 17 says, for the great day of God's wrath has come. And then ask the question, who's able to stand? If God is everything he is described to be in the Bible, if God is exactly like he describes himself, he's the one driving this car, he's the one who's in charge of everything, he's the one who has pre-planned and declared all of human history, how does he then judge? That seems to the human mind very unfair, and yet it's exactly how God is described. And if that God, who is in charge of absolutely everything, who makes his own decisions, who makes his own declarations, who is not responsible to anybody except his own word and his own internal holiness and righteousness, if that God is out to get you, who can stand? Knowing all that, knowing that what John describes is that first there's going to be a false peace, there's going to be a lot of war, just like Jesus said, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, and ethnos against ethnos, and people fighting with each other, and then there's going to be famines, and then there's going to be death, death by the sword, death by wild animals, death by pestilence, and then following that, John sees the martyrs who were begging God to pour out his vengeance, and he says, not until everything I've planned comes to its fruition, And then the sixth seal is the actual wrath of God. That's the order of events that John lays out. That's the same order of events that Jesus declares. It's the same order of events that Isaiah declares. At some point, we have to kind of go, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Run to Christ. Because the only way to respond to the question, who can stand, is to know that you can't. You can't stand against that vengeful, all-powerful God. Run to Christ. Only if you are in Christ, only if you are part of the body and the bride of Christ, only if you are part of the blood-bought, redeemed, are you going to be able to stand before God with all of your sins and your trespasses completely forgiven. He's going to give you a white robe, which is the righteousness of saints, And then he's going to purify the unholy and the impure so that we end up being spotless and unblemished. That's what the Bible says. So here's your two options. Run to Christ or run to the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and say, fall on us and hide us from him. And there's nothing in between and there's no gray area in the middle. You either bow the knee to an absolutely sovereign God and kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way. You either do that or I can tell you what your future holds. Everything we read today. Got it? Got it. Questions? Answers? (laughs) Run to Christ. Run to Christ. That would be the answer. All right. Steve's going to come up and lead you in one more hymn and then Michael will be here to dismiss us.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.